welcome to Her Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode, we are talking to Jane Tranter, the executive producer of the His Dark Materials TV show. Be warned that this episode is not spoiler free as we talk to Jane about things that happen in the Amber Spyglass and the Books of Dust. So maybe pop back when you've read all of the His Dark Materials books. Hello. Hello. This is us saying hello in the intro before we uh, send you over to listen to our interview with Jane, which is fantastic and I'm very excited for you to hear. Me too. Uh, she was so lovely and nice and we've been wanting to talk to Jane for so, so long and obviously she's a very, very busy woman and we are very appreciative that she took the time to speak to us. Uh, she was absolutely lovely. She told so many stories, which I just like had my mouth open while I was whilst I yeah. was listening to them. <laughs> the one about Lynn Manuel was incredible. Oh my God. <laughs> just the pa- the passion. I mean, it has to take such a force of character to be that person that approaches Philip Pullman to be like, "I can make this happen." I want to bring your books to the screen. I believe in it and we can do this. And that is, oh, genuinely, I want her to like, I don't know, curate my life or something. I know, I know. <laughs> I was thinking that. I was thinking she has such a strong sense of character and she knows what she wants and she knows how to get it. And she's so intelligent that I'm just in awe of it. And I just kind of want to be like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't... <laughs> I can't speak anymore. Jane speaks for herself impeccably. She is the driving force behind this show. She is the reason we're getting to see this on TV. And it is so exciting to be able to share this interview with you because it was so much fun to do. It really was. And yeah, we're just going to send you straight over there. So without further ado, here is the interview with Jane Tranter. Ta-da! Hi Jane, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, pleased to be here. Yes, we have been very excited about having you on. Our listeners are really excited to hear from you as well, so that's very exciting. We've got lots of great listener questions for you. Fantastic. So first of all, we obviously we know that you are a big Hit Start Materials fan. It'd be great if you could tell us how that started for you and where you found the books and, and where you were in your life when you read them. So I didn't read, I didn't read the books until all three of them had come out. Um, so I was, oh no, no, until the first two had come out. Um, so um, was slightly behind the curve. Um, but um, I read them when I was controller of drama commissioning Um at the BBC and I read them and I thought if ever I thought two things one if ever a novel was made for a television series this was it um and I must have it um for the BBC um and I thought then what I continue to think which was really my kind of my ruling passion, if you like, from the moment of reading them to the moment of being able to 
um, be given permission to do them, which is uh, these are characters I want to spend time with, which for me is an absolutely critical thing. But um, in any adaptation um, that you would do or any original piece, but particularly an adaptation, because you have a chance to have a sense of the complete overview of the lie of the land before you start. Um, and I think particularly on a piece as ambitious as this one, um, what I asked all of the kind of like the HDM squad, if you like, who came on early and have stayed the whole journey through Joel Collins, Dan McCulloch, Russell Dodgson um, was uh, and the writers, obviously, was, you know, do you want to spend the next five years with these characters um, because that's really how long it's going to take us. And if the answer to that is in any way a kind of like, mm, not so sure, then don't do it because it's going to be kind of like a big, huge commitment. But I, you get a sort of spidey sense for these things uh, as to what, where you really want to spend your time um, in the real estate of television. And I just knew immediately I read those books. So I was, um, I read them um, when I, uh, my kids were very, very young and uh, I'm glad it took me this long to make them because it meant that by the time I made them, my kids could you know, be part of that process. Um, so that's where I was in my life. But yeah, like everybody, it's a moment, isn't it? Where, where were you? What were you doing? What were you thinking when you first read His Dark Materials? Absolutely. Yeah. I suppose kind of that you gave us an instruction as to like what it was that kind of sparked your passion to bring his dark materials to the tv and quite a lot of our listeners and Anna's definitely don't necessarily understand a lot of the inner workings of how the tv game works so i'd love it if you could just kind of explain your role as the executive producer and what that journey's been with this series I, it, so the role of an executive producer in television can change from project to project so i don't work in the same way as an executive producer on everything that we've executive produced at Bad Wolf or at other times in my life. But on his dark materials, I would say that I am maybe the backbone of the project. I'm not claiming to be the brain or the stomach or certainly not the legs. I think the heart of the project is shared by many. Um, I wouldn't claim to be that. But I think perhaps I am the piece that holds it together um, and the piece that must be unbroken no matter what gets dropped on top of the project. I was certainly the initiator of it um, in terms of waiting and waiting and waiting to get the rights. I waited a long time to get them. And I've taken the responsibility of being given the opportunity to adapt these books really seriously um, which is why I would I don't claim to be the backbone for any sense of um, that's how incredibly important or grand I am but because it's really my responsibility I asked Philip and he entrusted me with those rights I take very seriously how uh, beloved these books are and how many dreams I would be breaking if we got it wrong. Um, and I also took very seriously the desire to open up these stories to the many who hadn't come across the books yet, or who perhaps um, had heard of the books, but hadn't quite had the courage to read a trilogy. So I would say, I think the keeper of the 
flame of the books, um, along with the writers, obviously, and the backbone. Um, I often think when we talk about making his dark materials, I often I, I, I often visualize a tightrope being put across the Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or something, and myself sort of pushing out across it and saying to everybody, there is an amazing view the other side. If only we can get to the other side of this of this canyon, you will all see what I can see. And yet I'm kind of pushing across it first. So I'm standing in front and the others are all kind of like, what, Jane, what can we see? What can we see? And I'm kind of like, you know, everyone remains steady. Everyone remains steady. We've got to cross this. This It's a tightrope. We've got to cross. Everyone remain balanced. I will keep, you know, I'll try and keep low so you can all see the horizon. I'll keep telling you what's on the horizon, but everybody keep going. Keep your balancing done. And every now and again behind me, I hear someone go, as they kind of like fall off because they get the fear or whatever it is. And I'm kind of like, everyone keep going. Everyone keep going. So I, I think I part of my other thing is as well as the backbone, maybe I'm the everyone keep going a person, which I think every production needs that, particularly one on the scale of his dark materials is kind of like, you know, come on, we can do this. This is how we'll do it. Everybody see this vision. We can do it. And everybody does. That's a great analogy. (laughs) One thing you mentioned speaking to Philip and getting the rights and all that kind of stuff. How was that process for you? Like, how does that work in a sense of, approaching philip and then i suppose working with him on the series uh so it was a it was a curious one um because actually the rights were owned um so the the rights have been sold to new line cinema who made the golden compass um and as is the case with film rights that don't necessarily work the same as as television those rights were sold in perpetuity so i had to first persuade new line that this was a good idea and alongside of that, I had to take Philip with me because there was no way, however much New Line had thought it would be a good idea, if Philip Pullman hadn't wanted to do it, there's no way that New Line would have done it. Um, so it had to be a sort of double thing. Um, with New Line, it was a question of talking to Toby Emmerich and Carolyn Blackwood, who uh, both now run uh, Warner Brothers Film Studios, but at the time ran New Line. And um, I was really lucky in that, that I happened to be asking and stepping forward for those rights at a time of two things. One, I had been living and working in L.A. for the past eight years. So I was kind of familiar with um, all sorts of things that I wouldn't have been if I'd just been based in the U.K. and was trying to sort of call, call someone. You know, I could pop in and out of their offices constantly, which I did, to sort of nag them and cajole and talk to them. Um, and we could get to know each other um, before they kind of finally said yes, all right, uh, which they didn't actually do until, you know, um, deep into my return in the U.K., but we had managed to get to know each other. Um And the other thing, I think I just really lucked out in that Game of Thrones happened. And so Game of Thrones had a, I think for me, was a massive turning point in television, more than any other piece I can think of, that really said, you know what, television can be as cinematic as film. It's just longer. And and the platform is different, but the content doesn't have to be. And, And production values certainly don't have to be. And so that persuaded Toby that it was possible to do this for television. I got very lucky on that because I think if I had made it um, in the early noughties when I first read the books, 
then it would have not been what it should have been. It would probably have been more like a sort of BBC tea time drama type thing because visual effects for television, they were great in films. I mean, you know, look at what Peter Jackson was doing. Amazing. But they hadn't reached television at that time. And I was lucky. I'm a great believer that timing is everything on a project and the timing for his dark materials was right. Um, It was right in terms of television catching up. Um, It was finally television was capable of being able to do what my imagination told me we could do with his dark materials. But but, you know, television just wouldn't have been able to do it then, but it could do it um, in 2016. So, so that was all good. Philip was, um, Philip, it was interesting. Again, you know, in my visualization, I felt that Philip was almost like, so at that time, Philip had um, a long ponytail and he had a long ponytail because he um, said he was not going to cut his ponytail off until he'd finished writing the first um, novel in the Book of Dust. And I felt that Philip, I felt that lots of things was, it was almost like his dark materials was like Rapunzel is began to what made me think it was sort of locked in this tower that nobody could get at because it was in limbo in it. Was it going to be made into more feature films or what was going to happen to it? And it was just sitting there while everyone waited. And it's complicated. These rights are very complicated. It's not because anyone wanted it locked in. It's just because it's complicated. And I, I kind of felt that, um, that it was sort of locked in there and that somehow it needed to be released. And that once it was released, Philip wrote the book of dust and the ponytail came off. It's not really an analogy that quite works, but again, in my sort of crazy visualization mind that that's how it was. So I think Philip really wanted it to happen. But on the other hand, you know, he'd had a stage adaptation, which he, he loved. He had the radio adaptation, which he really loved he had his audio book, which, you know, we all adore. Um, and it had the Golden Compass, which had worked in some ways and hadn't worked in other ways. And I think he just didn't, he really just didn't, I mean, honestly, he just didn't want it fucked up. Um, and so we talked a, a, on, on a, you know, a, a couple of occasions about what I thought and how we'd approach and what we'd do. And Philip always says that he was prepared to let me do it because we spent a whole conversation without ever mentioning the letters CGI. It didn't never occur to me that I hadn't spoken in those terms because we were only talking about Lyra and Will and demons and characters and story and resonance and relevance and all of that good stuff. And so it never occurred to me to talk about all the stuff which, frankly, I was completely ignorant of which was, okay, we got the rights, now what do we do? And all I knew was that there would be very talented people out there who would help me with that once we got to that point. And so Philip responded not to my ignorance. He didn't know it was ignorance. He he responded to the fact that I was going to approach this without being obsessed by CGI or VFX. And he's been amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. You know, he's had things he's liked. He's had things he hasn't liked. Been very interesting because they haven't always been necessarily what you would expect. But he's been such a supporter. Um, He keeps us on our toes. You're never far from forgetting that he was a middle school teacher. (laughs) You know, our grammar, our grammar is corrected. 
um, where we get it wrong is kind of like corrected. I think we all adore it when he comes around, but we're all slightly scared. Um, definitely the Welsh cakes come out and the kind of like windows are cleaned when Philip's coming round. But every day we go to work uh, thinking about Philip Pullman. As I can't really explain it. It's a weird thing. You know, everyone who works on his dark materials is united by the passion for that material. And every day we go to work thinking of him and what he meant. And we have to be quite brave because sometimes we can think, okay, we think we understand what he meant, but we're going to do it differently because we think this will look better on screen. Like the alethiometers clearly not in that sort of square cigarette case that Joel brilliantly made for it. It feels really, really right now. But we went with that leap rather than just presenting around a lithiometer because we thought it would feel more distinctive, it would feel more modern, it felt like there needs to be a case for the alethiometer to carry it in. We didn't want something which felt quite so traditional. Um, there was a very mid-century kind of feel to season one and that alethiometer felt more in keeping with it. So we had to sort of offer, we had to show it to Philip Pullman in a, it was in a form of sort of grey plastic at the time, the sort of mock-up kind of like prop to show him and you go with that with kind of like hoping that he'll go with something which is not a direct like he like for like, which he did. Amazing. <laughs> I suppose you've spoken a little bit already about like this amazing team of people that you've been encouraging along the tightrope and that you've assembled to bring with you the HDM gang. I'd love to know about that process of like finding all these essentially mega fans from the people that we've spoken to and bringing them together to make this happen. Like, did you kind of have people in mind when you knew this was a project you wanted? Did they find you when they heard it was happening? Some found us, but I would say the main thing I did was I found Dan McCulloch, um, who's the executive producer with me, and it encouraged Dan McCulloch to think that actually he could do this. Um, I remember... I'd known Dan McCulloch since he was a, a runner, you know, way, way back in the day and had always been very taken by his his brightness, his um, passion for particular projects and how sort of well-connected and personable he is. And um, I suppose I could have gone for an executive producer to work alongside of me. I, I never, because I also run Bad Wolf and I executive produce a number of projects at the same time, I, I never executive produce on my own. Um, I make too much mess if I do and I need someone to kind of like um, work, work with me always so I can move between the projects. Um, and I suppose I could have gone for someone who had more experience in the areas that I didn't or, you know, just some experience in visual effects or whatever it was. And um, but I just thought Dan was right for the journey. Uh, I remember Dan saying to me, he really wanted to do it. He did respond and love the books as I knew he would. But I remember him saying, I, I don't think you're, I don't think I'm the person that you think I am. Um, or maybe he said the producer, I'm not sure that you think <laughs> I am. And I said, I think, I think you are. I just think you don't think so. Or um, you don't think you are yet, uh, but you will be. And Dan made really you know, needs credit for a lot of the key decisions. He critically, he suggested Carleen Crawford, the casting director, 
who Dan knew and um, who has been brilliant. Her and um, Danny Jackson um, have been brilliant in helping us find that particular mix of casting that we have, you know, very grounded, um, but at the same time able to play sort of slightly heightened. He critically, he found Joel Collins and briefed Joel Collins to such an extent that when I met Joel Collins, he came down to the studio and I interviewed him for what is probably the most important job that anyone can do on his dark materials. And I felt like I was almost like, you know, it was just like a complete meeting of minds. And to this day, I don't know if that's because Joel Collins and I really do have a meeting of minds or whether it's because Dan briefed him to an inch of his life. (laughs) I don't think it really matters. Um, but I often wonder, um, only those two will know. I, those were really the the key. Getting Framestore on board um, was, um, I think, the kind of like the, the next really critical component. Uh, we met a number of different um, visual effects companies. We had originally started off by thinking we would do what television normally does, which is put the visual effects out to multiple vendors. So you put, oh, here's everyone who's really good at animals and here's everyone who's really good at environments and and you do it like that. But we met Framestall. Uh, I heard Russell Dodgson speak, who I just, just got those books inside out and back to front. And the um, CEO of Framestall, William, spoke in a way that I would speak about his dark materials and the people, the heads of department we're working with that, you know, we need a partnership that they would be able to work with us and bring us this incredible value visual effects. But in order to do that, the visual effects people really needed to have a seat at the table because often in television, the visual effects um, company doesn't have a seat on the table. They're kind of sent lists of requests and things like that. And then they kind of like get on with it. And then they tell you, you've got two bytes to make alterations. And then you do that. And it, it's, it's not that it's uncreative, but it's just different. Whereas I really wanted Framestore to be in Wall Studios. I wanted to see them every day. I wanted them to have a seat at the table. Um, and when I heard William say that, I just thought, okay, this is it. This is meant to be. And they were really critical. Um, And then we gradually sort of gathered everybody else. And I always, again, you know, my crazy visualization, I always visualize his dark materials, like everyone sitting around like a sort of board table or something. And there's a, you know, there's myself and there's Dan and there's Joel and there's Russell um, and Framestore um, and there's Jack Thorne and a seat by Jack Thorne for whatever other writer we might have working with us. And there's Caroline McCall, who heads up costume, and there's makeup, and there's a seat for whatever director we have working with us. And then there's the sort of physical producer, um, a seat for the physical producer, whoever that might be. And and it's like, it's that group of people that make his dark materials. We don't have a showrunner in the sort of classical sense, Jack Thorne, um, doesn't want to do that role. He's not that kind of, he does not not one of those um, writer executive producers who wants to be there day in, day out, checking everything through. Um, and while I take responsibility um, for the show, I don't do that role in any traditional sense either. It's done by this group of people. And I should add um, what someone who joined us along the way, but who wasn't there right at the beginning was Stephen Harron. 
Um, Stephen Harron came on season one of his Dark Materials as an editor. And he was so, he came on as a late editor. Um, so often in television, particularly on a piece as complicated as this, editors, you know, work on the individual episodes and then they go on to do another job and perhaps you still got work to do. And so Stephen came as a, a, a finishing editor, um, as it's sometimes known. And he was so good. Um, and we asked him to stay and help us through all of the post-production, you know, the delivery of the visual effects and the music and the soundscape, which was so critical. And he was just so good and his taste was so brilliant. And, I, and we all just loved him so much. And we asked him to stay and do it again on season two, um, but in a more formalized way where he oversaw um, all of the editing um, and the teams of editors on the show. And then uh, he's, he's now... Um, doing it again on season three but starting even earlier he's now starting and giving us script notes um and lots of people have grown up um as we've gone on it's one of the joys of having three seasons as you see people take on more responsibility and expand and and you know in their role shift and change i'm not really a believer that there is a kind of finite boundary around someone's role you know a good idea can come from anywhere um but it's been brilliant watching that team grow yeah definitely you mentioned uh casting and we did speak to dan and colleen back after season one and they were great we loved talking to them obviously they went into detail about casting there was a couple of things that i wanted to ask you because obviously we also spoke to lynn manuel who had lots of nice things to say and he said that you approached him and I think Dan and Colleen said the same for Ruth as uh, Mrs. Coulter. So I wanted just to ask you a little bit about those two characters in particular and what you saw in those actors for those roles. Um, but the Lin-Manuel one was, again, I just think it's this piece of synchronicity. There is a pe- timing for everything. So I um, I knew who Lin-Manuel uh, was through Hamilton. I'd never seen it. Um, I knew he was as an actor, Um because my time in LA and you know new american television a bit so i was aware of who he was but i went to see in the heights um in king's cross theater small production in king's cross theater and during the course of in the heights i had i realized that lynn had been to see the cursed child was in the uk and had been to see the cursed child that afternoon because he tweeted about it and um i thought oh, that's interesting here i am in the heights and uh, Lynn's been to see Jack Thorne's play and loved it. And, you know, uh, okay, cool. Um, anyway, just sort of sitting there. And at the end of the production, everyone took their curtain call, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly this figure kind of bounded, I mean, literally bounded from the audience up to the stage and leapt up onto the stage. And it was Lynn and there was a cast handover. So Lynn was doing what, uh, you know, that kind of musical theatre thing of doing your kind of, you know, hurrah to the cast, you know, for that particular cast. I just felt that, you know, he bounded on stage in this particular way. And for some reason, again, in my crazy visualizer, you will think I am completely crazy. <laughs> um, and it gets worse than this. This is quite sane compared to some visualization thing. But I just felt that he could have had a hair bounding up there with him. And there he was with his American accent and um, the nicest, just radiating a sort of shy goodness and humor and terrific presence. And I just thought it's Lee Scoresby. It's Lee Scoresby. 
And it's obviously not quite the Lee Scoresby as Philip wrote, but I just thought it is. It's Lee, it's Lee Scoresby. And um, he would be amazing. And so I couldn't really get it out of my head and then, um, you know, reached out to his people, as the Americans say. And we were in luck because he was in London filming Mary Poppins. And we were also in luck because he adored the books. So he met us on December the 13th, 2016. 2016 or was it 2017? 2016, I think. And uh, we had um, dinner uh, opposite where he was staying with uh, Jack, who was very ill, and Dan. And we said, we want you to be Lee Scoresby. I mean, he literally said almost as he sat down, I'm up for anything. Honestly, I'll play anything. (laughs) And we said, well, we were thinking Lee Scoresby. And he was kind of like, oh, my God, you know. And, uh, And that was that. And he just stuck with us. And we kept kind of like saying filming's nearly coming, nearly coming. And he held his dates and then he just came along and he was just so utterly, he was just brilliant. I mean, he is Lee Scoresby now. Absolutely. That's an incredible story. (laughs) I know. I I think you have to sometimes, you just have to read the sort of runes. You have to, you know, look at what life is is telling you. I think sometimes these things are really intuitive. Um, and we just got very lucky that that Lynn was there in London. You know, he, I might have felt exactly the same, and but you know, missed the thought of Lynn, or he hadn't been in London, and it would all just feel too much. In fact, he was in London and loving the UK with his family, so was happy to kind of like come and you know move them all to to Cardiff. Um, you know, the, you know, eventually, um, Ruth was Ruth was different. Um, so I knew Ruth already. Um, I had worked with her you know, way back in the day at the BBC. Um, and Ruth was different because she hadn't read the books before, um, but was very intrigued. And uh, as soon as she began reading Mrs. Coulter, she just, I knew Ruth would just completely get the shape of that character. And she did. And Dan and I met her um, and, you know, a couple of times and talked with her about the part and the production. And But I... I never really wavered from thinking that, you know, Mrs. Ruth Wilson was Mrs. Coulter. It was who else could glitter like that? Who else would so relish playing someone so bad, but play them so good all at the same time? I mean, outstanding. We do yes. love Ruth. <laughs> we do. <laughs> um, I will say, I think uh, everybody knows this about me now, but I, when I first read the books, I kind of glossed over Lee Scoresby a little bit. Um, and then when I saw Lynn play him, I was like, okay, this is this has clicked <laughs> into place for me. And yeah, he was, uh, along with Ruth, was definitely my my favourite character of the adaptation. I, he just did such a great job. He's amazing. But I think it's one of those things, when you cast for an adaptation, I always say you can't, you have to cast for the spirit. You have to cast for the essence of the character. Because if you cast for, well, they say you've got long blonde hair. So therefore it has to be long blonde hair. Or you say they've got a grey grizzled beard. So it has to be grey grizzled beard. You can end up casting for the way someone looks as opposed to for the way someone is. Um, and I, I then I, I don't think, weirdly, you could spend all of your time straining to get an actor who looked like the description, but who was nothing like the part. And so you have to, you really have to know 
um, the characters of the book inside out and back to front to be able to do this, I think. And you have also to have an eye on the sort of moment the piece will play. So how you may have cast it 20 years ago is not the same as you would cast it, you know, in, in 2017, um, 18, 19, 20, 21, for example. Um, and you need to keep open to that. You know, maybe 20 years ago, I might have felt more like casting, you know, Lee Scoresby is much older and more kind of like Texan. Um, but it just didn't feel appropriate to have that father figure in that same way. You know, it just not appropriate. That's not the right word, but it just didn't feel that it would have such resonance to a contemporary audience as casting Linwood. I guess I have a question about the feel of the piece, really, because the books, a lot of us come to them when we're younger and we really get entrenched in the kids' storylines and it is such a beautiful, magical tale for children. And then there are a lot of these like parallel storylines and themes that are a lot more grown up that as we read them, as we grow up, we kind of pick them out more and they resonate with us differently. And the TV series has done such a great job of being at that like, perfect Doctor Who time slot and being so entrancing to children and yet capturing the grown-ups focus and I'd love to kind of just have a conversation around that and like what you felt was important to draw in the kids and the parents and the way that you've pulled those themes through the show. Well I think the main thing we did was um, adapt the totality of Philip's books and are continuing to do so so if you and if you do that then he's done that already. He's he's laid it all out, you know, that his his novel exists on many different levels, you know, on which the surface level is the most amazing, exciting adventure story for a young girl um, and a demon who takes on the form of many different forms of animals. Um, and she has incredible and wonderful adventures and gets into dangerous situations but survives. Uh, and what's not to like about that? Um, and you've got to make it work on that kind of, you know, rock and roll kind of, you know, roller coaster, Lyra, and then Lyra and Will ride, of course. But then underneath that, there are many different things going on. And I think when you pull it out, so when you sort of have to take the pages of the novel and make them into something which is three dimensional for, for television you realise two things. One is you can't have Lyra in every scene all of the time because um, we'd never finish filming because children's hours are limited. And even an actress as mature and amazing as the extraordinary Ms. Daphne Keane would not be able to handle that and we'd still be filming it today. So the first thing we had to do is, you know, we had no choice, even if I wanted to do otherwise, which I did not, but we had no choice but to pull it out and think, all right, well, what do we juxtapose around this is one thing. The second thing is that um, in the book, the narrating voice can explain all sorts of things to you. They can give you a bit of background on the magisterium without leaving a scene, which is all about Lyra. Um, They can give you further information about dust without actually leaving a scene in which it's Lyra's there. But Lyra doesn't know about dust, even though that's explained in that scene, or um, she doesn't have any direct brushes with the magisterium for some time. And we had to find a way of explaining all these things to the audience. So we, we could, it meant that we could use the time that we had to find anyway, to kind of like, almost like 
um, pulling out the concertina, if you like, of the full storyline of which Lyra is the most significant part, but pull out all those other concertina levels and see all the other sections of storyline that we could put in alongside of Lyra to make it what's you know called multi-storyline television. So in Game of Thrones, you don't only follow Tyrion Lannister, you don't only follow Cersei, you know, you're cutting between all of them. Um, as the trilogy goes on, Philip does more of that, but obviously Northern Lights is very Lara focused. And we knew we would be doing more of that in Southern Life in the Amber Spyglass. So we made a decision to concertina out and do multiple storylines and follow Mrs. Coulter on her own. Um, for example, follow the Magisterium on their own, for example, and and do that without Lara so that we could have um, we could begin to explain and expand on other things. And so once you do that, that automatically gives you more layers, if you like, to what you're doing, other than the sort of rock and roll roller coaster ride of, of Lyra Balacqua, um, then Lyra Silvertongue. And then there's the um, really nuanced bit to consider, which is that in the novels, Philip can have very, very dark things and does have very dark things happening to Lyra and to Will. But there is something very comforting about the author Philip's authorial voice and the way he calmly places his prose, which means that you can either you can sort of get away with these things happening without it really freaking everybody out. Um, but when you bring it to the screen, we haven't got that calm authorial voice. We've got to show a bear fight, which is a proper bear fight. We've got to show Lyra in genuine danger. Roger's going to die. People are going to get spectered. And so how we do that in a way that kind of signposts to an audience that this stuff is going to happening so that um, the younger viewers or viewers who are more likely to be sort of, you know, want to watch, but are more likely to be triggered in a not good way by these things, how you signpost it, how you couch it, how you basically take them by the hand um, and lead them through some of the sort of darker valleys if you like, of the piece, is something we're always aware of. And and never more so than when we tackle the Amber Spyglass, which is obviously the darkest one that there is, and then some. But I think that it's almost like that is Lyra's journey. You know, in book one, Lyra starts in Oxford in a kind of safe, comfortably numb, cosy place, if you like, despite she, even though she's gradually learning the dark forces of the Magisterium around, and then she ends up completely on her own in a mountaintop in the middle of some Arctic kind of wasteland crossing through into another world through a hole that her father's blown in the sky using her best friend as a giant battery. Um, and, it, you know, it doesn't get much darker than, yes, she's got Pam, but it doesn't get much darker than that. But we can put it together in a way that means we can allow it to feel redemptive and hopeful. And, yes, she is cuddling the sermon. Um, and she's not completely alone. And Pan helps us enormously in those kind of situations and will continue to do so. Um, but it is a responsibility. How do you take the entire audience with you? But I do think that Philip, you know, in a way, Philip gets, he's just on the journey he's on. I mean, look at The Secret Commonwealth. It's one of the darkest books I've ever read. Also one of the most brilliant. But, you know, he can do that because he's taken by the time normally by the time you get to the secret commonwealth you'll have read the other books and you'll have been gradually taken on that journey um, um, and built through to it yeah it's really interesting actually to think about it in that way with philip and his really calm prose because i think when i 
because uh, I only read them for the first time a couple of years ago and I think it's only been since we've been going through them chapter by chapter for the podcast that I'm like these books are so dark like this child is going this is a child going through so much and it's yeah it's crazy to think about it in that way when I first read it I was just like oh yeah cool <laughs> I feel calm I'm great Philip's looking after me <laughs> yeah and I think the child bit I think the age moves around a bit and I you know we've had to think about that quite carefully you know Lyra over the course of the three books or you know our three seasons you know Lyra is you know will be 16 by the time we get to the end of the Amber Spyglass um, or during the Amber Spyglass even and you know time in his dark materials and well Asriel can bend it to his will and so can Philip Pullman um and i think that it almost that that there is sometimes a slight fudge over how old lyra is i think goes hand in hand i think it's fine because the reader can um put themselves in lyra's shoes in whatever way they need to and i think it's good that she feels so much older by the end i mean after she's been through all those experiences it would be impossible for her not to what we had to be careful of is on our television, how do we show that in our television adaptation? And that's why I managed to persuade the BBC and HBO to give us the first two seasons to do within a 12-month period of each other um, so that we kept our young actors as kind of like age continuous as possible and then break um, between season two and season three to allow them to grow a bit older. You wouldn't normally ever, ever, ever turn around a show this size within 12 months. I mean, it it, it, it literally, I think we all had sort of post-traumatic stress in some ways. I, actually, I shouldn't use that word lightly, but it was, we, we, were lit, we felt like season two had almost been ripped out of us. Um, it went so fast because we were post-producing season one while prepping season two. Um, and then post-producing season two in lockdown and um there's something amazing about season three because we were also able to start writing season three during lockdown um and so it's a very lovely thing to be thinking that we will be we are now um started prep on season three and we can prep and we can shoot it uh on its own i.e we're not in post-production on something else at the same time so we can love it into existence rather than kind of hurtle it into existence <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, obviously, um, post-producing season two during lockdown. How has that experience been? Because I know as fans, we were so grateful that the show came out when it did. But it must have been a huge task for you, uh, as well as like losing the Asriel episode. All that kind of stuff must have been quite the thing to go through uh, when the world is also going through something horrific. So just how was that experience? And also thank you for for making it work, because it definitely brightened up our end of the year yeah <laughs> well um I'm very glad it did it was a huge thing and I I think it brightened up our lockdown um you know that you can look back at that sort of strangest of times and think that we managed to do that during it gives it a sort of point of purpose that otherwise you know maybe didn't didn't deserve in in, in my life for sure it, yeah, it was quite a shock so James McAvoy turns up for filming on the Monday. Um, we'd had him down on the Friday, you know, done his costume. He had his 
of this perfect wig because his head had been shaved for his uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, and he came as James always does. He's like a hot knife through butter or a hurricane. You know, he's kind of like his energy, if you could bottle that. Um, and he just loves Azrael for, the, you know, plays him for all of that energy. And he kind of like came hurtling in and we got him for about four or five hours. And then it was kind of literally right everyone out. We're closing the production down. And I couldn't really couldn't believe it. And, you know, there are bad wolf offices in wolf studios. Um, so it can keep me as close to the productions as possible. And we just all sat in a, you know, just looking at each other, thinking, I really, really, really can't believe that we're having to close the production down. And um, and I got on the phone with HBO and the BBC and said, OK, you know, we're having to close the production down. We've got a suspected case of COVID. And, um, and it looks like the whole of the UK is going into lockdown. And that was on Monday night. And, and, and they, you know, it was happening all over the world, all over. We were one of the last productions still filming. And I thought it's only three weeks. I reckon we can outrun it. I reckon we can outrun this virus. And, um, and it was already beginning to be, you know, every hour, another production kind of closed down and I was, we can do it. We're in a studio. I'll just shut the doors. <laughs> you know, it was just literally like anything. Um, <laughs> at one point in my crazy visualization, I thought we can all, there's a really long corridor upstairs. We can all sleep on camp beds and we can just quarantine it all together. And it was kind of like, okay, Jane, that's not going to happen. We can't do that. That's kind of okay. <laughs> what will we do then? Anyway. Um, so that was Monday night, um, and I thought, okay, that's it. It's not going to work. And then I – actually, the Tuesday was my birthday, and I had taken the day off to take my daughter to um, look at a university for where she might go to study fine art. And that university literally sort of it kept its doors open just so she could go around and look at the fine art building as but they were amazing. This is Lancaster University. So big shout out to them. And there was a long drive on the way back. And on the way back, I was just thinking, I cannot believe what's happened. Um, when will we do this episode? You know, if we shoot it in August, when does this mean we can transmit? And, you know, we're going to miss our, you know, we're obviously going to miss our dates and, how can I edit all the other episodes? Just still waiting for this episode to be in place and sort of grieving what we'd lost. And as I went through in that car journey back, beginning to grieve for what we lost, I began to think of what we had and what really analysed what that episode was was doing, that if we removed it, we'd have to find a place for how we'd fix it in visual effects elsewhere and began to think of what we might do and then spoke to everybody, but particularly Russell Dodgson, particularly Stephen Harron, obviously Dan McCulloch um, and Joel um, about how we might handle this in post because whatever we were missing could only be fixed in post. Um, and we'd have to re-edit these storylines from eight episodes into seven episodes and how would we then manipulate the story to be able to put the bits of plot that were missing in. Um, and we worked out a plan. And on Wednesday evening, I we all met in Wolf Studios and went through it and waited while I was waiting to talk to HBO and the BBC to pitch out what we'd do. 
we got all the information about you know you uh, no no A levels happening and schools closing and everything you know lockdown kind of like beginning. Um, got on the phone, pitched it all out to HBO and the BBC, and said, "This is how I think we can make our dates, but it will be seven rather than eight. And they were kind of like, "Okay, that's fine, but can you guarantee? Can you guarantee that you can deliver this if you embark on this journey? Because it'd been very expensive. We'd embarked on it and hadn't delivered. Um, I was kind of like, I think so. You know, that's all I. I mean, I probably said yes to be honest, but inside I thought I think so. Um, and then we started the process of just doing all but remotely. So as I'm talking to you is, you know, basically how we did everything. And I think that because the team had worked together during season one so closely in post, it was possible because Stephen Harron and the editors just, you know, they just had set up the Avids and the, in their own homes. Um, and some people got COVID during the course of it. Um, some people cope well with lockdown, other people not so well, you know, at different times. We all cope well and badly at different times, uh, but we just kept going. And really, I mean, you know, Dan and Stephen and just Levin um, really kind of like pulled us all through it. But, you know, it was amazing to, to yeah, it was quite an achievement to get it to happen. And we were just really glad it did. And it was just so curious watching it go out at that moment in time when you realise how relevant it was. Um, you know, how Chittagatsi is like, you know, the high street, you know, during lockdown or should be like the high street during <laughs> lockdown. The high, the high street should be like. Um, it was quite the thing, for sure. Yeah, it must have been tough. And I'm sure you can't tell us too much but I'm I'm imagining that it will impact some of season three as well I don't know when your filming dates are and things or if you can even say but <laughs> uh, so we'll start filming we'll start filming season three later this year um and I can say that you know we're not we're going to film season three late enough for it to feel better Damn, I've, and I filmed Discovery of Witches, for example, right the way through the eye of the storm. Uh, we started filming that in September last year and eventually finished filming it early February. Um, so we're filming it late enough to for it to feel better than that, but not late enough for us to think, hurrah, it's all completely fine. We will be making his dark materials under, you know, COVID restrictions um but we're you know we've had some experience of doing that now I think it will get better um we're really lucky that we have got you know a studio to film in and whilst you can't stick yourself in the studio all the time um it's it's a help um the testing is getting easier it it it, it, it is getting it is getting easier but there's no question that it will be a challenge no question of that at all but I think it will be easier than it could have been that's good that's good to hear <laughs> definitely I guess with everyone is so excited the end of season two was so great and obviously season three is going to be a challenge to do but are there some of those challenges in there that you're just really really looking forward to and what are the challenges that you're dreading in terms of like the fact that the third book is just quite bananas really what is what are you excited about tackling challenge wise that Philip's pulled out of his brain? <laughs> um, well, I'm excited that the third book is quite bananas, really. 
Um, uh, I, it's very technicolor in terms of it's kind of, it's right out there um, from the Galavespians to the Mulefa, Vardy Angels, um, Metatron. You know, it, it's, I think the challenge will be allowing those elements to feel properly fantastical, but keep everything grounded at the same time. Um, so the Galavespians, for example, you know, are fierce warriors and need to be taken very seriously. Um, and the Mulefa are, um, you know, got very heightened sensibility and sort of poetry to them. And, uh, and we need to lean into all of that. And the angels, you know, the voice of Baruch and Balthamos is very human despite being um, celestial, and we need to lean into all of that. Um, so I think it's about ensuring that we both allow the piece to really lift in the third season and perhaps celebrate, take the brackets off perhaps some of the crazier elements of fantasy more than we have done in season one or season two. You know, just let it be a tiny bit more, but at the same time ensure that it feels really grounded. I, you know, Asriel's Republic, that sort of camp that he builds where he gets it all up together really quickly. Um, you know, we've had to really think through that carefully. And and whilst Philip will always sa says, you know, you don't build castles in the air through logic. That's right in a book. But in television, you can't just go and here it is. There's no logic to it at all. You know, you have to kind of like, um, unfortunately, I wish you could, but you can't. Um, so we have to think our way through, well, how has he done it? And what does this mean? And how does it grow bigger during, you know, the course of the season? Um, so I, every single solitary one of those challenges, you know, I think we all just revel in. And I think, you know, we got some confidence, you know, we were tentative about the witches in book one, which is partly because by the time we got to the arrival of um, of the witches in book one, we were kind of overwhelmed by sort of bears and severing and, you know, lots of other things that were going on. And, and we said, OK, right, we'll really deal with those in season two. And and so laboured, you know, through how we can really make these witches work in season two. And I think, you know, we've done a, a bit the same with the angels. You know, we kind of like have given a nod to them in book two, whereas Philip gave them more space in book two. And we've really, I, I'm a great believer in kicking a pro problem down the, or challenge sometimes down the, the road if you can, because you just give yourself time to really think about it. And so, um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing the angels in all their different forms come to life. I don't know, just the whole of the Amber Spyglass is a challenge. And, you know, it's a love story as well. So that's a challenge. You know, in the middle of all of this craziness, we have, you know, many different love stories going on. The love story between Lara and Will, the love story between Mrs. Coulter and Lara, the love story between Asriel and, and Lara, to some extent, the love story between Asriel and Mrs. Coulter in a gentler kind of way. You know, there's a, a lot of loving going on. Yeah, absolutely. When we put out questions, a call for questions for you, Jane, a lot of people, including us, wanted to know if you would be interested 
in adapting the Books of Dust as well. Obviously, quite far down the line. We actually spoke to Daphne about this and we were saying how interesting it, because we asked Daphne if she would like to play Lyra when she's older. And it's really interesting because Daphne will probably, by the time that happens, if it, if it ever does, she'll probably be at an age where she could p- play the older Lyra whilst playing the younger Lyra, which is so cool. Like, it's not really something that you see very much in TV. So yeah, what are your thoughts? Would you be interested in, in doing that? Uh, I would absolutely adore to adapt the Book of Dust. Um, absolutely love to do it. I think telling some of that early story, the origin story of Lyra, Azrael, Mrs. Coulter, is brilliant. Introducing the world to Malcolm, what a privilege that would be. Um, but the Secret Commonwealth, I mean, that book is everything. It would be just the wildest ride. I mean, it's it's that's an insane mount to bring to the screen much bigger than any of the others um so yes I would absolutely love to do that it's such a great and rare opportunity to revisit a beloved character that you know is a child and a teenager when they're grown up and have had to process some of that trauma of their first adventure well I I think it's part for me it's part of the reason that made Game of Thrones so sticky for an audience is you saw those Stark kids grow up and we'd have just done a similar, you know, we'd have just seen Lyra grow up in a very different way, obviously, but it's the same. I know we touched like a little bit on kind of bringing us way back again there, touched a little bit on the witches. And we could definitely feel that in season two, there were a lot more conversations coming through with a lot more focus on women's stories and a lot more of a kind of feminist focus kind of coming clear in the second season. And I just wondered if there's anything that you'd like to speak to in that, because we just love to see those stories piecing out. And you could just tell that there are a few more women in the writer's room as well, which was great to see. Yes. So I think that, I mean, that's been one of, um, you know, one of the wonderful things about adapting these novels is pulling pulling some of the threads um, of the characters that Philip lays and just maybe pulling them a little bit more strongly than perhaps Philip did. So in season one, Mark Costa goes to the north, you know, and she doesn't go as a nurse. She goes as, you know, in exactly the same footing, you know, that that all um, as as the Egyptians at some points thought she goes on the same footing as everybody else. And we play Mrs. Coulter trapped by the patriarchy, uh, which was absolutely something that is there to be read. You know, she's called Mrs. Coulter. Everybody else, Lord Azrael and Sir Charles Leitrim and Lord Boreal and everyone else has got this title and she's Mrs. Coulter. And Jack, you know, laid the foundations for that. And then our Francesca and uh, Sarah and Namsey um, and Lydia really went for that too in season two. And we are further pushing into that um, with our our, our writers um, on season three so we've got three writers on season three two of them are women obviously we have jack and it's been you know it's just been a great pleasure to be able to give voice um to some of the female characters um more strongly in our adaptation i can't even say it was a massively here this is what our agenda is going to be it's just it wouldn't have felt authentic keep coming back to that word or you know in in when we were adapting it if we didn't do that and I you know I just couldn't help it anyway 
yeah fair <laughs> do you this is a, a, quite a quick question but uh, do you have a favorite character overall no i i i can't say i do um as the as a mother of twins um i can tell you that comparisons are odious and you just it is possible to love uh without having a favorite so i don't have a favorite character but i can say that I am, and this is not the same as having a favourite, but I am particularly fond of Will. So I am particularly um, drawn to Will because he is a young lad who has had to become the parent rather than the child. And for many reasons, that touches me deeply. And I love the fact that Philip created a hero from that place. Yes, I agree. When I first read the books, Will was the standout character for me as well. Yeah, I have a lot of love for Will. I think most people do, but yeah, I um, I felt that very, very much so as well yeah, with what you just said. I think it's, it's I mean, partly because, you know, he comes from our world and that kind of brilliant, brilliant thing that Philip does in the start of book two to not only start, you know, from a completely different perspective, but to start um, and to start with a murder story, but to start uh, in our world and kind of like re sort of center um, the drama and and so you can't help but be drawn to him for all of that but it's more than that it was just a such a such a great place to grow a hero from definitely i can remember picking up the second book as a kid and being like who's this where's lyra what am i reading the right <laughs> book what's going on yeah. and i yeah. love that but i also love the way in the tv series you've tackled it by bringing Will's story in so much sooner, I remember the episode where we first see Will and like texting Faye immediately and being like, what, is, what are they doing? But that was yeah. so exciting <laughs> as a fan of the books to see that. And I wonder if there's any other little surprises there that you're particularly proud of. That one was probably, I mean, that one was one of the scariest things I've ever done, actually. But once we'd done it, I could really feel it worked. And then it was a question when I watched it, go out live with you all and people were kind of what the fuck's Boyle doing you know blah, blah. you know it's kind of like it shouldn't, shouldn't be happening yet kind of um and I was just thinking just just wait just wait you know we put just enough in each episode to make people think what's going, what's going on what's going on um and then to to kind of like land the connect those stories and and to get entry to Will via a character we'd already seen in Lara's world and just then see everyone's reaction once it finally landed and to see that we could, you know, properly play out Will's backstory was just a real joy. But it was really scary because we shot all of season one without shooting that section and without really writing that section either. Um, And we didn't shoot that section um, because we hadn't cast um, Amir. We were having to wait for Amir to become free. Uh, and also, to be blunt, we'd run out of time. So it kind of like, it suited to kind of like, you know, wait. And so we had to edit the episodes thinking, well, at this point we'll cut and at this point we'll cut and then try and really precisely shoot it and write it to fit in those moments, um, which was really tricky um and if it what if it hadn't worked you know what if it hadn't worked 
but it and we it was really nerve-wracking um but it 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 did work i mean i i believed in two things i believed one in the sheer power of will's story to just make it work and you know how jack would tackle that and secondly i believed that if you give an audience the scent of something intriguing and slightly thrillerish then you can take them by the hand and and lead them to a place they're not really sure where they're going and so that was it was really as we were cutting everything together and we began to see the shape of boreal and how he was coming out and i said you know boreal will take us through you know he goes anyway you know so charles had obviously been boreal slash charles had been crossing through the worlds for ages to clearly to build up the life that he had so we'll just follow him and he can take us there Oh, we loved, loved Slash hated Boreal in the series. He was so great. We loved to hate him. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit about demons, actually, because I know that it must have been a challenge to bring demons to screen. And obviously, it's kind of one of the biggest parts of, of his dark materials or people that think about his dark materials and the characters in them, you think about demons. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak about how that was to kind of create Pan and all the other demons and the challenges that that brought. So that was really um, the genius of, 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 of Russell and the Frame Store team, um, ultimately. But I think it was helped by our use of puppets. We used puppets in order to ensure that we got the best possible performance from the kids so that they had something, you know, proper and live to connect and characterful to connect with. Um and the puppeteers were so great that they would help create a sense of presence and movement, um, which we frequently followed in the visual effects, um, in particular with the golden monkey. The shape of the golden monkey it was, we, we, we often followed that almost to the letter. Um, and it, it gave, in the really strong um, character and demon relationships, Lyra and Pan, Mrs. Coulter and Golden Monkey, for example, it allowed them, and Ruth just took this to the absolute sort of zenith, it allowed her to create a performance which was partly what she was giving and partly what she wasn't giving that the monkey was giving. So because human and demon together make up 100% of a character, or maybe they make up 200%, I'm not sure, but certainly they make up the character together. Uh, so you can't give everything as the actor because sometimes your demon is 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 doing it for you. And, and I think that puppets really helped bring that sense. So we used the puppets and it meant that, you know, whenever you were watching, you know, we were in the edit, sort of cutting it all together, you, you know, for... for, for months and months and months you know we have mrs coulter going up in a lift with you know brian standing there with the golden monkey puppet until eventually they were taken out and the golden monkey was put in and i miss brian you know i was kind of like what's this scene about you know where's brian you know because you you just kind of like get so so used to it or or um you know mrs coulter and the golden monkey um 
in uh in her flat when um when benjamin um is there and you know there's someone coming in flying the bird sort of thing and you just get so used to it because they're so brilliant because they do it viciously or with fear or or um you know however it's meant to be but they do it with such conviction and commitment that that can transfer through and then what Russell did is Russell ca- literally cast the demons. So we would spend ages kind of like, well, when Pan's an ermine, what kind of an ermine and how's it going to be and what size? Because this is how a male golden monkey would be. But do we want it this size or do we want it slightly smaller or do we want it like that? And we would look at all the animals and he would literally cast. And then they would just go and characterize. And that's when, you know, it's not just about having, a, you know, a cute animal on screen. Uh, you know, demons have focus they listen, they have personality, and and Russell and his team, you know, they just did it all. Uh, I mean, there was hardly a time. I think everyone's visual effects in my industry, everyone's visual effects nightmare is, oh, well, you have a look and it's not really good enough, but the visual effects companies say we've run out of time or money. There was never, ever an occasion where I looked at something and said, well, it's not good enough and they said it's run out. We've run out of time and money. I mean, partly because I never looked at anything and said it's not good enough. I mean, there were occasional twitches just to kind of like join in and make out I was kind of like doing something. But basically, everything we got given was by and large amazing. Yep, yep, definitely. I think demons was one of the things that the fans were worried about. And then I think as soon as we all saw season one, we were like, yeah, we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> There was some anxiety across season one. Um, I I know that you know there weren't enough demons, um, and that was something we talked about an awful lot. Um, because in real life, you know, if the three of us were doing this, if we three of us doing this podcast with demons, you know, my demon wouldn't necessarily be standing behind me, kind of like you know the whole way through. You know, I'm not necessarily going to always have my soul on view. As we talk, although when I talk about his dark materials, actually, to be honest, my demon would be right forefront up there staring at the screen and my soul would be on view. But they're not, sometimes you want to be more hidden. Or one of you might have a mouse or a demon and it's in your pocket. Or or one of you might have, you know, a, I don't know, a, a snow leopard and it's kind of like under the desk or they're not always on view. And there's a sort of, and if they were always on view, it would be like we're in some massive menagerie the whole time. So you have to think, okay, when are we going to show demons? And Philip Pullman was always really clear on this. He said, the demons show up when you need them and when you don't, they go. Don't have loads and loads of them around the whole time. And actually that was brilliant because we couldn't afford to have loads and loads around the whole time. But it was kind of like, thank you, sir. (laughs) We have permission. (laughs) (laughs) I guess... I'd just love to know if there are any particular moments across these last two seasons that you are really proud of, if there are any like big struggles that you feel were triumphs that we need to hear about, or just like standout moments that for you as a fan of the books were beautiful to see on screen and that you're feeling really proud of. We'd just love to hear about them. I think probably Death of Roger. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was this kind of standout moment because I think that tonally was really difficult. I mean, the whole of that last episode of season one where, you know, we have to go through what we do, you know, with Asriel and Lara and the harshness of that and the warmth of Lara and Roger and Miss Coulter not going through the anomaly um, and then Lara having to deal with it all and... Um, we did all of that on a, you know, on a mountaintop 
in the stage in Wall Studios. And I think it was really, really difficult um, to get the tone, the consistent tonality of that episode right. Um, and I think that we did. I think that what Daphne and Lewin did was phenomenal. Um, as well, you know, what James and Ruth did was phenomenal too, but, you know, those two kids. So I'm really, really proud of that. Um, I am, as I've said, really touched and pleased that we managed to weave Will's storyline in as we did. I love the death of Lee Scoresby. I love what Lynn and Christella did there. Um, I'm sorry, it just sounds like I'm going on about the desk, but, you know, they're kind of, I think um, uh, because, you know, there was so much love um, between uh, Lee and Hester and so much love with Lyra and Roger and her determination to move forward in his name that there's kind of redemption um, in those moments. So um, I'm really proud of those. I think that overall, I, um, you know, they're kind of like my my favourite moments in some ways. But then I think, you know, there are things like we really, you know, we were worried about how we get the witches to work. And then seeing Ruta Scardi on that submarine, you know, flying away through the sky and on that submarine, it's kind of like, you go, girl, you just go. <laughs> you know, what David and Luca did and what we the team managed to do to sort of support her through um, from, you know, teaching her how to fight, uh, you know, everything that we added um, to make that sequence work. Um, but overall, I just think it's, it's every day, as I say, we push open the doors of Wolf Studios and we go in um, to spend another day making his dark materials. And it's just the endeavor of many in a way that it always is when you make a television drama but there's something about his dark materials where it's the endeavor of many, all of whom stretch themselves like pieces of elastic to kind of like for these books, for these scripts, for these stories, um, and for their meaning and relevance and resonance to an audience today in 2021, 2022. Um, and I find that profoundly moving. I'm so grateful and feel so lucky to you know be part of the team that are doing it um and i find it profoundly exhilarating and profoundly scary all at the same time one of the things that i was going to speak to jen is that we get a lot of people emailing us saying that they've found the books through the tv series which i think is really really great there's a lot of people that have just watched the tv series and haven't read the books and i just think it's really great to be able to build a newer community around his dark materials that maybe didn't read the books the first time around like me because I didn't read them until a couple of years ago and it's just really nice to to have such an active community around the show and the books yes so I've uh you know I've done a lot of book adaptations over the years including some really kind of like dry dusty bits of Anthony Trollope kind of thing which I never found dry and dusty but um but potentially people would and I think that it's one of the great things you can do on television the television and the novel for me I mean I, I love novels and I love television and it's not that I don't like film because I love that too but it's just a bit short for me um you know I like the real estate I'm greedy with story I like it to go on for hours and hours and hours 
Um, and I like the, you know, the great thing about the real estate of television is that you can do plenty of room for narrative and plenty of room for character and plenty of room for the two together. And um, I, I think that they're, you know, they're very closely entwined and uh, novel adaptation suits television. And it has been a great joy over the years to be able to put on the television some books that people might not find for themselves, because why should they? Not everybody's great readers. And often the language can be off-putting or the period can be off-putting or the setting can be off-putting. Um, but if they can access the story and the characters and the things it's got to say through television, all to the good, maybe that will push them back to the books in the case of his Dark Materials Hurrah, but, you know, maybe it won't. But at least they've had some access to it somewhere. I have to say, I recently binge watched Discovery of Witches and will be listening to the audiobook. So you've definitely done that with another one of your series is for me. Very good. Excellent. <laughs> but I hadn't heard of that at all until the TV series. So again, I just love that it's bringing so many people in. I guess we're kind of running up to the end of time and we just want to ask you our last two questions. Standard HDM questions. You may have heard them before. Now that we're on the subtle knife, we're asking this one, which is, if you could use the subtle knife to cut through to any kind of world, what kind of world would you want to cut through to? Oh, I have not been asked that question before. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to leave all those people I love. So either I have to take them all with me, or I have to use the subtle knife to kind of cut my way out round and cut my way back again. I don't know. I love our world. I think our world makes these dark materials. I think our world has made some of the greatest pieces of art and music. Our world looks up at the stars and dreams. I'm completely content with our world. I'd like to cut all the shit out of it. Uh, you know, let's get rid of let's get rid of COVID. Let's get rid of Brexit. Let's get rid of Boris Johnson. Let's get rid of it <laughs> yeah. all, etc., etc., etc. Um, so I think I'll probably just cut my way in and out of our world, cutting out the bits that feel a bit shittier. Um, although as we all know, you don't get joy without some pain in there somewhere too, but it would be, it would be good to go and cut out COVID and Brexit. Let's just start there. Nice. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. And then, okay. The last question, which I'm sure you've definitely had before. What is your demon? So I, um, when I was first asked this question, I felt quite comfortable that my demon was a wolf, obviously. How could it possibly not be? Wolf Studios has got a great big wolf above it. The company's called Bad Wolf. I really like wolves. I think they're great creatures. You can have lone wolves, but they also go in a pack. Um, they kind of look after each other, but they're really proud. I, 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 you know, They look amazing. They howl really brilliantly. Obviously, I'm a wolf. What a cool demon's that. End of story. And then I realized, you know, as, as I got asked the question so many times, it made me really sort of think about it. And um, and I thought that, and particularly, you know, I often get asked that question with Jack, whose demon is a woodpecker, and he always goes, you know, a woodpecker banging away at my head. And I think to myself, you know, and I can really visualize that. And I begin to think, I'm not, I am, I am not a wolf. That That is what I want to be. Um, and as far decorum would put me right on that, you know, quite quickly, I'm sure. Uh, my demon, I believe, is a pit pony, you know, one of those ponies that um, is enduring and will push their way through the tunnel and uh, will go on and on 
um, needs a bit of looking after. And if you look after it, it will, you know, it will love you and it will keep on going. And and my grandfather was a coal miner. And I kind of think there must be a bit of pit pony blood in me somewhere. So yes, it's not as glamorous as a wolf, but I think it might be a bit more realistic, to be honest. Yeah, I think both the wolf and the pit pony would have trouble getting across that tightrope that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, that's true. But it's only a visualization. It's not real. I'd never get. I'd never get across a tightrope. I mean, to be clear, I wouldn't. One, I wouldn't have the guts. But secondly, the minute I was on it, I'd have fallen off. It's only a visualization. And look, you know, yeah, they can, they can, they can find a way across that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you so much, Jen, for your time. We really appreciate you joining us. Yes, That's an you. absolute pleasure. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much for all the amazing podcasts and tweets that you do and your enthusiasm and the way that you tackle it and the particular angle and attitude you come at things is really marvellous and um, and very inspiring. So thank you to you both. Thank you. Thank you. That's so <laughs> kind. <laughs> Hopefully, um, if you'll if you'll pop back after season three is done, we'd love to chat to you about that. Definitely. Will do. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. Bye. Oh my God. I feel like whenever we come out of interviews, one of us says, oh my God. But oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my demon. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. That was great. What amazing stories. Feeling like I need to go and have a little cry because I'm so happy. What a joy to speak to Jane. Thank you so much jane for your time this was incredible and i'm so excited for season three (laughs) me too also i wish that you all could have seen mine and rachel's faces when jane was saying all those nice things about us at the end we were just i just died a little bit yeah yeah we're we're dead now it's like we can't do this anymore (laughs) r.i.p us i'm just kidding we definitely can't do this and we will carry on doing it. But oh. <laughs> call me Roger. I'm dead now, and I need a hug from Lyra. <laughs> oh my god. R.I.P. Roger. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. It was just so so bloody great. Um. Thank you, Jane. Thank you to Jane's team who helped arrange this. Uh. We really appreciate your time and effort. It was so so great. And I just feel like after every interview, I need to go and have a little lie down. And I feel like that now. And just kind of like soak up all the amazingness that was speaking to Jane. Definitely. And if you were also captured by Jane's enthusiasm for his dark materials, I definitely recommend looking at the other projects she's worked on. I did binge watch Discovery of Witches. It is great. I do highly recommend. There's an overture in the score that sounds a lot like Buffy and Angel's overture because it is about like a romance between a witch and a vampire. And I'm really here for it. And you need to watch it. Amazing. basically anything that she has worked on seems to turn out amazing and so i'd highly recommend checking out all of jane's projects and all of the bad wolf projects because they're just great and i'm really excited about it (laughs) yes would like to particularly recommend succession it is nothing like his dark materials and i can only imagine it's nothing like a discovery of witches but it is phenomenal and i would highly recommend checking that out i remember when i was watching it and uh, the credits came on and I was like, I saw Jane Tranter's name and I was like, of course, of course it's Jane. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jane also tweets a lot about projects that she's working on, so it is well worth giving her a follow if you want to be kept up to date on the hot TV series is to be watching right now. Because, Absolutely. you know, if she's tweeted about it and worked on it, it's probably great. That's how I found out about Hate Susie. Hate, I hate Susie, hate Susie, yes. Yes, that's how I found out about, about that and I watched it and it was bloody great. So, yeah, well worth a follow at janetranta one on Twitter. Yes, definitely give her a follow. She is great on Twitter. And yeah, I don't know what else to say, no. <laughs> Just over to the outro, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that should be how we do outros all the time from now on. Over to the outro. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye and when I'm not talking to Jane, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Faye which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my old blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making designer toys, art, and illustrations. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thanks to Jane for her time and to her team for helping us set this up, and a big thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. And don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Jane. Yay. Thank you.